one of the most surprising, I think, uh, episodes in the gospel is when Jesus says to Peter, a disciple, in fact, one of the inner circle, Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. That you, you are not desiring the things of God, but the things of man. That a temptation comes to Jesus through what seems to be the good advice, the practical advice of Peter. Someone devoted to him. And yet when Jesus starts talking about him, uh, him being, being arrested, handed over, crucified, Peter doesn't want to hear any of that. Peter doesn't want to see Jesus hand himself over to his enemies. Peter wants to see Jesus victorious over not only Rome, but also the corruption of the priests and the Pharisees. And return Israel to what it should be as a nation faithful to and following God. And so Peter's outlook is, no, do not hand yourself over. Now's the time for you to take your victory and to reign and rule as Messiah. And Jesus' response is, get thee behind me, Satan. Can it be that at times, temptation comes where we don't expect it? Temptation can actually come in this passage morning. In fact, the picture on the front of the bulletin was chosen because that's a picture of the Judean wilderness above Jericho, probably in the area where Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit for 40 days. And he's fasting. And he's hungry. And then temptation comes us. But we will not always be tempted merely in the wilderness, in times of denial and need. We will often be tempted in what seem to be safer places. By what seems to be a reasonable spiritual outlook. We will hear things like, well, you need to follow your heart. You should follow your own desires. Those things that you want to pursue, go ahead. Or maybe it's to you know, accomplish great things. You can be somebody. You can make a difference. Do great things. That seems good enough. Or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's, have you ever been told, Sometimes you just have to take a leap of faith. Well, be encouraged. Jesus was told that too. He was told to take a leap of faith. And yet, that was not the thing to do. So we're going to look in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 this morning. And we're going to see how does Jesus respond to temptations? What do we learn about temptations? What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about our God? What do we learn about ourselves? There's a basic lesson that we've probably heard before, which is God's truth is the answer to the enemy's lies and temptation. We need to take that away, and I'll, 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 I'll talk more about that in a bit, but there's more to it than that. There's more that I want us to see that will arm our souls against the temptations that we face. You see, temptation tells us something about Jesus. Temptations tell us something about ourselves. First of all, no temptation will overtake you except as is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that. So there are, there are common ways in which we are tempted. And I think this, this chapter does a great job of actually taking a pattern that was also described in Genesis chapter 3 
And we see different kinds of temptations that we're also going to face. Maybe not in exactly the same way. Probably not in the wilderness above Jericho. But we will face these kind of temptations. And yet, God is faithful. You know, the, the, really the, at the core, at the root of temptation is the lie that God is not faithful. You need to go another way. Whether it's in satisfying your own desires another way because God will not be faithful there. In order to accomplish even a good and right goal that you have. But you need to do it your way instead of God's way. God is faithful, which means that he will then not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now that's interesting. A way of escape sounds like we're going to get out of it. A way of escape is to escape the falling of the temptation that you will be able to endure it. You can endure. You can resist the devil. And as you resist the devil, he will flee from you. It doesn't have to be the other way around, you see. It's just like in the Old Testament that, 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 that God would not have us flee from our enemies. God would have our enemies flee from us as we stand in faithful confidence in God's promise. What he says about us. Who he says that I am. That he will keep me. He will hold me fast. Temptations tell us something about Jesus. And about ourselves, I said. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 says that Jesus came in his humanity. That he was tempted in his humanity in all things as we are. In the same kinds of ways as we are and yet without sin. We should be encouraged by the, by the wake of victory that Jesus leaves for us here. That we, we follow behind him. He has cut the way. He has shown us the way. And yet you would say, but... Yeah, that's fine, but that's Jesus. That's not me. And, Pastor Bob, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but I'm not Jesus. Yeah, I've noticed. I've noticed that about me, okay? And is it fair for us to look and consider this is how the sinless Son of God answers the, the devil in temptation? Is that fair because I'm not him? I'm not sinless. You know, I'm vulnerable in ways that Jesus was not vulnerable because he was not going to sin. But does that make the temptation that Jesus faces any less real? This is a theological question. You'll need to go back to Foundations for Faith to get the answer to this. But is Jesus really tempted at all if he cannot sin? Let me propose an answer this way. Imagine a submarine. It has been carefully engineered with engineering margins that are twice whatever real-world conditions it could ever possibly encounter. It has been engineered to withstand the pressures of the deep. And then it is carefully manufactured. In the manufacturing process, there is a complete and full and thorough quality assurance that it is manufactured without any shortcuts. It is made and assembled in the same way according to that excessive engineering. And yet, before it ever runs on a mission, that submarine will be taken on test cruises. And on those cruises, that submarine will dive to test depth. And the test depth is lower 
It'll go down deeper than it would ever be expected to go on any actual mission. And yet, they are not sending the submarine down on its test depth in order to find out, will it be crushed or not? They're actually quite confident, certainly the crew on board, is quite confident that this submarine will withstand the pressures of the deep, not just to operating levels, but all the way down to that test depth. It will not be crushed. They will not be crushed within as it collapses. They're confident that it can withstand the pressures even at that depth. Does that make the pressure at that depth any less deep? Just because the submarine is designed to be able to withstand the pressure, does that decrease that pressure in any way? It is just as real. It is just as crushing. But that submarine is able to withstand it. And so also our Jesus. He knows what the pressure is like because he's felt it to the fullest. And yet... He did not give in to it. And he does this in the same means that God has given us. Let's look into that. Luke chapter 4, and beginning in verse 1. This just follows his baptism where he has identified himself with fallen humanity, with sinful Israel. He has joined them in their baptism of repentance, though Jesus has no reason to be baptized himself. He is without sin. He has nothing to repent of. And yet he is baptized in Israel's national baptism of repentance for their guilt. He identifies himself with sinful humanity. And then after that, verse 1 of chapter 4, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We are to be filled by the Spirit. We are to, to live led by the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that is unique to Jesus. Led by the Spirit for 40 days, being tempted by the devil... Most of us are not tempted by the devil. The devil has bigger fish to fry. The devil, the devil is not omnipresent, that he is everywhere all at once, that he's able to give his attention to every one of us. No, that's way down. I like the images that are portrayed in the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. That there are, the devil, there's the devil and his minions. And somewhere down the food chain among those minions are those that are focusing and interested in Bob. How shall we tempt him in the midst of this? So spiritual temptation by spiritual enemies is very real, but Jesus faces the captain of the horde. And he ate nothing during those days, 40 days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, in the midst of a, a time of weakness, in the, in the midst of a vulnerability that is related to his fleshly humanity, that's what the devil goes after. And look how he starts. The devil said to him, if you are, or you could read it, assuming you really are the Son of God, well then, let's, let's put that to use here. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Take these little round stones that after 40 days of not eating look a lot like a small loaf of bread. You could make it bread. You could do that. You have the ability as a son of God to do that. If you stretch beyond your incarnation and exercise your 
prerogative as God. Don't limit yourself to humanity here. Go ahead and take it for yourself. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. First of all, the enemy attacks him in a familiar way. We saw that in the garden. Has God said you shall not eat of any tree? Look at this fruit. Is it not good for food? Temptation then was a temptation now. And Jesus is hungry. And some people would write that off and say, what's the big deal? He's hungry. Eat. The food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. That's what the Corinthians would say. And when they said that, they were talking about certainly using the stomach, an analogy, if your stomach's hungry, it's because you should eat. But if people simply eat when their stomach tells them to, what happens? Yeah, you better avoid the scale, right? You don't just follow the stomach. You don't just follow that which we crave, although that's an easy way to live. And yet when Paul is quoting the Corinthians little, little um, saying here, He's applying it to other appetites of our physical body. There are other urges and desires that are part of our human physical makeup that they are pursuing. They say, eh, it's just, a, it's just another appetite of the body. And it doesn't really matter because it's body, not spiritual, so I can just go ahead and fulfill that desire, that lust, that appetite. And Paul says, yeah, you, you do that and it'll eat you alive. He says, food is for the stomach, stomach for the food, but I will not be mastered by either. Rather, he says in chapter 9, I will buffet my body and I will make it my servant. I will get this body to serve my mind and my spirit as I serve God rather than become its servant of its desires. That's what's at stake here. But doesn't God want you to be happy, not hungry? Well, I'm not sure. I, I am sure that it's a lie that God always wants you to be happy, not hungry. You will not find that in Scripture. It certainly doesn't line up with Job's experience. It doesn't line up with Jesus or Paul's experience. It doesn't line up with Moses in the wilderness or fasting for 40 days in a high, high point of his spiritual experience with God on Mount Sinai. So it's not true that God just wants you to be happy. God just wants you to be full. God just wants you to bless you in all kinds of ways and just enjoy whatever is out there. No, the spiritual life is much deeper than that. Jesus answered it. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So yes, there's the, there's the first lesson to take away. And this is one of the reasons we do a ministry like Awana, for instance. One of the reasons we have Sunday school. One of the teachers was telling me this morning how, how the, the, class, the verses that some of the kids had learned in Awana fed right into the Sunday school lesson and, and were reinforced there, and he was just thrilled in that. The, I will hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Jesus answers the lie with God's truth. That works. But that verse, this is what... what, what, what Sarah and Clarissa were talking about, about the foundations of faith and understanding what we believe. Rather than making the, allowing the Bible to simply be a rule book for us, why does God say that? What is this statement about? If you go to that statement that Jesus quotes, the, the, the intention of that back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is this is Moses' call for the people of Israel to trust God when they enter into the land that God has given them. It's a good land. It's a fruitful land. They will prosper in it, but they need to trust God in it. 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, the fuller context says, Remember, in this land, remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years, testing you to know what was in your heart. He humbled you and he let you hunger. God sometimes will let you be hungry. He let you hunger and then he fed you with manna so that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone. See, that's the whole thrust of the quote. That God will allow a time of hunger so that they would know that they could rely on him. Jesus doesn't need to take the enemy's easy way out because he knows he can rely on his Father. And if you know that that's true, if you know that your God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ, you will not need to succumb to the enemy's false, cheap counterfeits either. You can trust in God. I can trust God to meet my needs. See, I don't need to serve my own needs. Rather, I need to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. Didn't Jesus forsake his own needs all the way to the ending of his life in order to meet our needs instead? There's a spiritual example there. There's a principle there. That often it is in denying ourselves, denying our need or want or craving, that's where we will actually be walking closer to our Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. Parents learn this in life. The giving of ourselves away for the sake of our kids. Psalm 37, verses 3 to 5, puts this well. It's a familiar verse, but I want to read it in a, perhaps a less familiar translation. The New English transver- translation, or the Net Bible, I think expresses it very well. Trust in the Lord and do what is right. Settle in the land and cultivate faithfulness. The psalmist is urging his people to continue their faithfulness in God. In fact, do the things and make the choices in life that will cultivate faithfulness to God rather than going their own ways, going after the bales and seeking prosperity in other directions through other means. Trust in the Lord and do what is right. Settle in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Then you will take delight in the Lord and he will answer your prayers. Commit your future to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act on your behalf. You see, the point here isn't merely that Jesus is hungry. The point is, who will He trust to fill His hunger? Will He trust the enemy's lie, or will He trust God's promise that God will provide for Him? That God will not ask Him to do more than He is able to bear? We might be told to follow our desires, but I would say rather we need to seek what God desires. Similarly, we might be encouraged to do great things, and there are good and godly goals to pursue, but far more important than the goal we pursue is how or the means by which we pursue it. The devil in the garden promised a wonderful goal. He said, you can be like God. Is that a bad thing? Being like God? We're we're not we we created in the image of God to bear his likeness to the rest of creation? We were created to be like God. In fact, godliness is related to the idea of God likeness. 
That we are be transformed from glory to glory into the same image of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is working in us as growing believers. It is not a bad thing to be like God. The bad thing was the enemy encouraging them to pursue a good goal by their means instead of God's means. So subtle, so sneaky, like a snake. And that's what he does here with Jesus as well. The Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who, upon whom the government would rest upon his shoulders, and the devil takes him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. That, by the way, is a contradiction of Daniel chapter 4, where Daniel declares that the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of men, and He gives them to whomever He will. But let's still listen in. If you then will worship me, the serpent says, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, one of the reasons I think Jesus doesn't need to cave to this, he's offering, he's offering the, in a sense, what it is that Jesus came to be. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of David. He will be King of kings and Lord of lords. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. That is the end game. But Psalm 2 says, the Lord in heaven laughs, and he says, I, God, have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God is the one who makes him king, not Satan. Satan is offering the easy way out. Satan is offering a bargain, a deal, a shortcut the easier road, but it's the devil's dead end. You cannot get there from here. In fact, all that Jesus would be ruler of, if he was going to be ruler of the world at all, he would be ruler of a fallen, broken humanity that could not be redeemed because there was none to redeem him, and Jesus himself would be broken and separated from God as their rebellious ruler. You see, it's not just, hey, just, you know, Go down to the knee just once, quick. Doesn't have to be a big deal at all, and it'll all be yours. No, what the enemy is calling for is an enduring defection. And in temptation, one decision can determine direction. That's why repentance is called repentance. It's called a turning from. Because in a moment of temptation, I have chosen a different direction. And I need to return. I need to again agree with God about that sin. That's what's con what confession is. I need to repent and turn and again walk with God in his way instead of my own way. Do great things for God. How about do God's thing? And sometimes God thing, God's thing is a little thing. Sometimes it seems a humble thing. Sometimes God's thing is not to be the out front charging leader. It's to be a humble servant that nobody else recognizes. How do I know that? Jesus said so. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. And Jesus will experience that more than any, in that though sinless, he will bear our guilt and shame and separation from God his Father, persecuted to the nth degree that he might not only receive the kingdom of himself, but that he might give it to you and I for us. Rather than doing great things, do God's things. Whether it's a great thing or seemingly a little thing. That kind of ties in a little bit to the next one as we move on to verse 9. Perhaps you've been told, take a leap of faith. Sometimes you just gotta, gotta trust the Lord and just go for it. Show what God can do. And that's what the enemy seems to invite Jesus to do. He took him to Jerusalem. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you are, for argument's sake, let's concede that. You're the Son of God. If that's so, then throw yourself down from here, from this pinnacle of the temple. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, to keep you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So then, why don't you go ahead, leap off, and, and, and dare those stones down there to splatter your human body. Won't God keep you from that? He's taken him to what's called the pinnacle of the temple. We're not sure exactly where that is. It's probably, a good answer as any, is this on the southeast corner of the Temple Mount, where there the retaining wall rises up the highest from the Kidron Valley down below, Not only that, but then you have the walls surrounding the the Temple Mount itself, and you have these porticos, like Solomon's portico, where Jesus himself would teach, was a two-story columned covering with closed rooms, but also porches that were covered, and, and teachers would teach their students there. So standing at the very rooftop of there, it was over 400 feet down to the valley below. That's a long way. Anything over... 100 feet onto rocks, and you're done. Let's face it, this is over 400 feet. In fact, Josephus says to stand up there and to look down was dizzying. A person could get dizzy and fall from dizziness. It wasn't a place to just go sightseeing. But Jesus didn't have anything to worry about. He's the Son of God. God has said he will give his angels charge over you. The angels are responsible. You've got guardian angels that will keep you. You can't get hurt here. And imagine, this is at the temple. There's people around. They're all going to see. And they'll all know that, look, you are God's man. They will, you'll take a leap of faith, you're trusting God, and everybody's going to see God's deliverance, and they'll know you're special, you're unique with God, and they'll listen to you, and they'll follow you. Don't you want that, Jesus? Don't you want people to realize that you're special to God? Do we sometimes crave a spiritual experience that we will take a leap of faith, even if it's irresponsible, because we want others to see what God will do for us when we put it all out there. It may not line up with what Proverbs says, 
about a wise or prudent action, but we'll trust God to bail, it out, bail us out because I'm his. That's what Satan is tempting here. Everybody will see this. They will see that God delivers you. The devil is telling Jesus to do a Gideon. To prove that God is really with you. Force his hand. Make God have to show himself here. But Gideon was not an example of faith, but of fear. Maybe they, they want to see a public display. Maybe we want others to know that we, we, we have experienced something great with God. We've seen his hand at work. Because of attention it brings us rather than glory it brings God. There's a misuse of Scripture here. The devil is quoting Scripture, even as he twisted God's Word to Adam and Eve, he twists God's words here by leaving something important off. And it's a little thing. You wouldn't think it matters. In fact, I was reading some commentaries earlier this week that said, ah, don't make much of that leaving that off. It's just, you know, he, he capsulates the main point of the verse without those extra words needed. I think those extra words change everything. The extra words are, he will command his angels concerning you to keep you in all your ways, not just in the spectacular ways, not just in a particular moment when you claim that verse and say, God, you better do this, but in everyday, ordinary ways. Faith remembers what God has done, his redemption and his provision, that trust in God in the ordinary rather than craving or demanded in extraordinary deliverance. Faith in God says in the words of Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I will not demand that God deliver me here, there, or anywhere. Faith in God and his promise is what those three whom the Babylonian king cast into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down. They refused to bow to anybody else other than the one true God. And their answer to the king was, we don't know if God will deliver us or not because the king dares to say, who will deliver you from my hand? And we said, well, God can. We don't know if he will. We dare not demand that he will. But whether God delivers us or not, we will not bow to you. And so he cast them into a fiery furnace. That sounds terrible. Until he looked in. There they are walking around. And there's a fourth one in there with them. One like the Son of God. And all the fiery furnace does is release the ropes by which they were bound. Trusting God, even in the midst of a scary, hard suffering, freed them. Faith remembers what God has done, his redemption and provision. The context of, of Jesus' quote here, that, that in verse 12, Jesus answered and said, again, he quotes scripture, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know where that comes from? Moses' charge in Deuteronomy 6 for them not to put the Lord to the test. When they enter the land, do not put the Lord to the test like you did at the waters of Massa, where you came out of the wilderness, in the midst of the wilderness, out of Egypt. God had just redeemed him. In fact, God had just given them manna to eat, and they had seen God's provision. And yet they complained, God, you brought us out here in this wilderness. There's no water. You brought us out here to, to die of thirst. Both us and our children, even our animals. God, you don't care about us at all. They tested God. 
And then Moses took his rod and struck the rock. And water came from a rock to provide for them. My God shall supply all your needs. We can trust him. And we do not need, the, the, the one who trusts him does not need to put him to the test. God, show me yourself here, God. No, Jesus said, in fact, it's an evil and wicked generation that demands a sign from God. If they knew God, they wouldn't have to ask Jesus who he was. They would have recognized him. Faith trusts God in the ordinary rather than the extraordinary. So Paul, in writing to Timothy, his last letter, some of his last words, before he's going to be executed by the Roman emperor, and he's, he can say this, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to keep until that day that which I have committed to him. I can trust God. I can trust God with my work among the churches. I can trust God with his word even in these letters. I can trust God for him to continue this ministry even without me. I can trust God for you, Timothy, who I wish I was going to have more time with. I can trust God with my own life, not only today and next month, but forever. Because he will keep me. That is his promise. You know, I loved, I loved the uh, Old Testament survey class that I got to teach finally. Everybody else had a crack at it, and finally they let me go with it. And uh, last quarter, and I would say, if I could write one phrase, one New Testament verse over the Old, Old Testament, it would be this. I know, you, 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 it's hard to pick. I know. So don't tell me afterwards, no, no, Bob, you're wrong, it should be this. Please don't do that. But it would be, if we deny him, he will deny us. That was Israel's experience, wasn't it? But if or though we are unfaithful, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's the story of the Old Testament. God makes a promise and he keeps working it. Even in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness, he yet restores them and brings them to his promise. And he will. Because it's not about what we can do. It's not about our faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. God has promised us that he will make a way of escape so that we are able to endure. We are able to hold up into that temptation. And, and James gives us one of the keys to that. How is it that we can endure? He says, James in, in 4.7, Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Oh, he'll continue and he'll chatter through Peter. He'll connive through Judas. He will, in fact, in the, in the very next section, he's going to find Jesus in Nazareth. He's going to arouse a crowd against him. And they're going to try to throw him off a precipice, a cliff that is probably double the height of the pinnacle of the temple. And yet God does not save Jesus by catching him in the winds and lifting him back up again, as some, some myths say. No, the Bible tells us that Jesus 
in the midst of their wrath and anger and trying to surround him, he, like, a, like better than any NFL running back, just walked right through the crowd and went his way. That's what he did. In a very ordinary way, God delivered him. We can trust God when his way is not the normal way around us that others would advise us, when it seems less, when it seems slow, when it seems too ordinary, God could do so much more. We can trust God when he works through very ordinary means like us. We answer temptation the way that Jesus did. Know God's word. Know the better even than knowing God's word. I used to treat the Bible like magic verses, almost like an incantation. You, you, you spoke this word and it would just have its magical effect on somebody. They'd have to be saved because I'd said these words in the right way, in the right Bible translation. That's silly. Jesus is, in the words that he is quoting from Old Testament Scripture, he is also bringing into that an understanding of the God of the Word. That's what we're after. That through God's Word, we would know the God of the Word. That's the goal. That's why this is called special revelation. It reveals God to us so that we can know him. Answer temptation by knowing the God of the Word. That's why we have BP Academy classes. That's why I've included in your, in, your, in, your, in your sermon notes inserted in the bulletin this morning, I included on the back side of that some verses to hide in your heart. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How will a young man keep his way pure by taking heed according to your word? That's what these are for. These are verses that I have found helpful. I still remember when I was young, 19 or 20, I went on a... a I, went on, I was in the Air Force. I went on a youth retreat in the Air Force. We went, we went camping. I uh, had a wonderful uh, evangelical pass, uh, chaplain at that time that led that retreat. But I remember well, the thing I got out of it most was on the bus ride on the way back, talking with a guy who was probably 10 years older than I, and he was sharing with me something that he'd learned. We were talking a little bit about the stuff of life and temptation. And he gave me a verse that he had leaned on for years in terms of temptation. And it was Job 31.1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then shall I gaze at a virgin, at a maiden, at a young woman? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice purity with my eyes. I've made a commitment with God to do that. Now Job is, is making the statement in the defense of his innocence that he hasn't done anything wrong that would cause all this trouble to come upon him. But I grabbed hold of that succinct little phrase as a reminder to me, Bob, make a covenant with your eyes. Be careful, little eyes, where you look. So take these verses. There will be particular verses in there that meet needs where you're tempted right now. Please, I urge you, take God's word and have it ready in your heart so that when the enemy comes whispering, you can answer him. And when you fail, and you will fail, I will fail. We will stumble and fall. How do I know? Because God's word tells us so. If we say we have no sin, <laughs> I've got this mastered. God's truth is not in us. We know that, right? We, we, we experience that. That is the reality of this weak flesh that we still drag around with us. That's true. When we fail, we need to remember God's promise. And it's on the bottom of your 
notes on the front side. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we are unfaithful, yet he continues faithful. He is faithful to apply what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. It is just and right that God forgives us because Jesus has paid it in full. And that's where we need to rest. When, when you have fallen in temptation, you, you are motivated to buckle down and try harder. I'm going to do better next time, God. How do you know that? Does the track record demonstrate any likelihood of that? How about instead, God, I trust you for what you have done for me in Jesus. And you know what? The reality of what he's done for you, as that soaks into your heart, that cleanses you. And that actually strengthens you against the enemy's false attractions. Because he can't compete with that kind of love. It's more easily, it's, you, you, we're more easily tempted when we're alone. So don't be alone. When we're without another one who can strengthen us, who can encourage us, who can even warn us of a direction we're headed in, don't be alone. Walk with the Lord, with others. That's what our small groups, that's what our discipleship groups are about. Grab one of those brochures off that next step wall. Small groups, discipleship groups. What, how do I take a next step? It'll tell you. Make use of that. That we, are, we were intended as God's church to walk together. Finally, trust in the one who identified himself with us. Trust in Jesus, his life for you, his righteousness in place of our failures. That he who, who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might be made the righteous in God in him. His righteousness is for us. Will you believe God for that? Will you trust God that even in the midst of your failure, God, I don't need to hide from you. I don't need, a, need, to, need to play fig, fig leaf in the garden. I can come back to my Father on the basis of his mercy and his forgiveness in Jesus. Let's take a few minutes to pray before the, the worship team returns and we sing one last song. Father, we confess together this morning that, yes, we do sin. Lord, we confess that, yes, we are tempted. Lord, we are tempted not only by the enemy's minions, but even by the appetites of our own flesh, our own desires, our own cravings, even the, our own wounds in the past. They, they drive us to seek fulfillment, to try to fill a hurt, a need we think we have in some way other than in you. Lord, when we do that, when we turn our own way and rely on our own answers, they are false lies and they will not satisfy. And it actually turns us away from you. Lord, we do want to walk in the light as you are in the light. We want to have fellowship with you. We don't want to wander off. Although we would sing with that hymnist, we are prone to wander. So Lord, would you strengthen our hearts? Would you take our heart, seal it? Lord, would you by your Spirit work in us both to will and to do. Father, we confess today that we need you for that. 
we need you to uphold us. We need the one who is the king of kings, the ancient of days. We need his strengthening in the midst of our weakness. Father, there are times when we are afraid of the circumstances that we are in. And our fear causes us to search out for some answer, some other confidence, whether it's doctors and medicine, whether it's finances, something that we can grab onto that would give us some security, that would armor us from our fears. But Lord, we cannot. We cannot protect ourselves. We are vulnerable. And so, Lord, our confidence is is instead in you. You are the most high God. You can keep us not only from, but you can keep us through any fiery trial. And so, Father, most of all, in terms of facing temptation, Lord, help us to trust you. And Lord, might we be deepening our trust in you as we give ourselves, devote ourselves, press into knowing you. Because as we know you, as we see you, we will trust you. We ask these things, Father, as your own children, in Jesus' name, amen.